0: In the Second Baptist Church archives, now housed at Washita Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, there is folder after folder after folder of Dale Cowling's sermons. Some are typed manuscripts of nearly 20 pages. Some are a few pages of scribbling on a legal pad. Some are just outlines on a sheet of stationery. They cover all manner of topics, exhortations to tithe, the dangers of alcohol, the state of the church. Before laying eyes on the collected sermons, I assumed in error that I would find them arranged by year. They are actually catalogued by scripture reference. So the Cowling collection of sermons starts with Genesis and rolls on through Revelation. This is hellish if you want to find out what he preached in, say, 1957. On the other hand, they're formed eventually. A certain wonder in opening a folder and being transported to the country's bicentennial in 1976, or the fresh grief following a president's assassination in 1963, or the preacher's reaction to the 1977 miniseries broadcast event that was Alex Haley's roots. So it was that I eventually arrived at Cowling's sermons on a book called Philippians. I knew not where I was in American history as I cracked open a folder for Philippians chapter 2. Typically, Cowling would note the date of the sermon's delivery in the upper left corner of the first page. The significance of this date took a moment to compute. 72069. 72069. Scribbled underneath that, in black ink, he wrote, Date of Man on Moon.
1: Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now.
0: Cowling titled his Sunday evening sermon, Living Luminaries, and would be making the point that Christians should reflect the light of Christ. But that's not really what I'm interested in here. It's the other stuff, about reaching for the heavens. Cowling wrote, in the day's gendered language, the moon is the largest luminary visible to the eye of man from earth. Because of this, it has always held a terrific fascination. This great luminary has constantly compelled man to explore it, to come see what it is like. This fascination has gripped the minds and concerned the efforts of thousands. Only this afternoon, July 20th, 1969, at about 3.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, man landed his craft on the surface of the moon and will soon step out upon lunar soil. Man had to go.
2: Minus 10, nine, eight. We a...
0: I love all of this for several reasons, not least of which are Cowling's corrections. He originally wrote, Man landed his craft on the surface of the moon and will soon step out upon the surface of the moon. He scratched that second mention of the surface and replaced it with lunar soil. We will soon step out upon lunar soil. Okay, I just checked uh... Getting back up to that first step, uh, I a pretty good little jump. I imagine Cowling was looking to eliminate redundant phrasing, but his rewrite hit home for me, a native of Huntsville, Alabama, home to both Marshall Space Flight Center and the farm where I grew up, lunar soil. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. The surface appears to be very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's, Almost like a powder. That July 1969 evening in the church at the corner of 8th and Scott, Cowling noted that lunar soil was now something humans trod. It was a feat that represented blistering change, expansive vision, and people on the move. Step off the land now. Cowling and the church he pastored were acquainted with all of it. Good Faith Media, this is the six-part narrative podcast, A Second Language, Episode 5, Lunar Soil. Brooks hayes was defeated for congress in november 1958 he was still president of the southern baptist convention though and a frequent speaker all over frankly much of what brooks hayes was going around saying in 1959 has remarkable currency in 2023 for example here he is speaking at william and mary in march 1959
2: that god is no respecter of persons and he made of one blood all nations of the earth and that uh, we are one family. The oneness uh, of this human family is is again so fundamental that it must be in the background of our thinking, a common faith and a common humanity.
0: And this about grievance.
2: And they've got their problems, the minority has. Instead of feeding our grievances and our irritations always, we must divert some of our mental and moral energies into uh, the business of studying their point of view In finding a way then to to work together for the good of both.
0: And this about education.
2: The private school must be financed by private uh, resources and not by tax money. Tax money diverted from the public school is a violation of some other basic principles. and And
0: one more about justice.
2: Finally, we must seek to do justice in specific individual and local situations. Now you see i haven't said anything yet that the segregationist uh, should really take issue with if he believes in democratic processes for the determination of issues and yet i know and perhaps that's the thing that he suspects that this rigid pattern to which he is committed will be altered if these things take place if men are free to discuss it for as we approach these local situations and find that specific conditions are out of line with our abstract reasoning on matters of justice, then men have a way of bringing change about so that more perfect justice is achieved.
0: When Hayes gave his second and final presidential address to Southern Baptists in May 1959 in Louisville, he didn't shy away from the recent past.
2: And of course it is not news to you that I've had a turbulent two years. I've been referred to as a controversial figure. I ask your indulgence for a brief reference to the recent change of fortune in my professional life, since it came at a critical stage in the denomination's effort to relieve racial tensions and contribute to the mission of reconciliation.
0: I noted the applause after Hayes said,
2: Whatever the individual Baptist thinks about legislative policy in this field, it is apparent that scriptural support for state segregation laws cannot be claimed. They did not originate.
0: <clears throat> and it's important to note, too, that the thoroughly Baptist Hayes could really speak the love language of Baptists, that is, missions and missionaries. And they responded.
2: I have steadily insisted that this, the nation's number one problem, has an impact upon our missionary enterprise and must be met with high statesmanship and Christian insight. In my talks...
0: They ate up Hayes' concern over how racial strife at home could impact missions abroad.
2: We must continue to examine with keen sensitivity the aspirations of our minority people for a status that is free from all discrimination and injustice this is a part of the christian gospel and we must demonstrate that we believe it we cannot export what we do not have and if our christian devotions here are inadequate Our missionaries cannot transmit the Christian message to unsaved peoples abroad. These missionaries plead for a better performance in human relations.
0: The country lawyer with a lot of ambition kept on moving. In December 1961, Hayes was sworn in as a special assistant to President John F. Kennedy. Meanwhile, in 1962, his friend, Dale Cowling, celebrated 10 years as pastor of Second Baptist Church. In a sermon marking that anniversary, he, ever the Baptist like Hayes, gave thanks for the mission-mindedness of the church. He celebrated its downtown location and pumped the congregation up for a bright future, despite, or perhaps because of, its experience during the integration crisis. Indeed, Second Baptist had by then developed a reputation of sorts.
3: And my primary reason for coming to Second was because of Dale
0: Cowling. That's Jim Malick. He started on staff at Second Baptist as youth director in August 1965.
3: And I knew what had happened uh, in the previous years in 57, 58 when uh, fathers closed the schools and so forth, and I knew the stand that uh, they had taken, and so.
0: I visited Jim and his wife, Gail, at their home in Little Rock. Joining me was my colleague, Starlette Thomas. You heard from her in episode two in the archives. The four of us enjoyed dinner.
1: We have uh, my mother's hot chicken salad.
0: And conversation. Starlet and I picked the brains of this gracious couple who hold much of the institutional memory of the church. Jim recalled being interviewed for the job by cowling.
3: We were walking down the sidewalk, sidewalk and I remember two things that he told me, because we stayed over at the Albert Pike because it was a hotel at the time.
0: Remember, that's the Albert Pike Hotel, opened in 1929, named for a Confederate general, and standing right next to Second Baptist.
3: And two things I remember he said, the great thing looking to the future is that the arkansas river is going to be a series of crystal clear lakes all the way to the mississippi well i hadn't seen a crystal clear lake out there yet
1: not
3: happening it's just a big old muddy river but the other thing was he said you know he said i'm just hoping someday we can buy this albert pike ourselves And i said this guys <laughs> must be nuts but he's got a vision
0: Over dinner of hot chicken salad, twice-baked potatoes, and green beans, I asked them, Alex. By the time y'all got to the church, did you feel like the church was already on some sort of trajectory, if you will, or that the identity of the church had already kind of been cast, if that is a fair way of phrasing it?
3: The identity had been cast, but they were still...
0: 1960s Little Rock. Like other parts of the country, was experiencing white flight. The racial makeup of neighborhoods and schools was changing. Second Baptist, unlike many other churches, chose to stay downtown. In October 1966, it dedicated its new sanctuary, downtown, at the corner of 8th and Scott. And in the literature of the era, you can see it working hard to pitch itself to populations moving to the suburbs. The Arkansas Democrat newspaper carried an ad at the time for Second Baptist. The ad was a drawing of the church, surrounded by clouds of suburbs like West Markham, Metacliffe, and Westover Hills. A line connected each suburb to Second downtown, indicating the drive time. Park Hill, 7 minutes. Westwood, 18 minutes. Where the difference is worth the distance, the ad said. So the church was trying to convince members and prospects that Second was worth the drive. And by the late 1960s, the church was also doing ministry work among African-American children in communities that whites were abandoning.
3: We started, uh, under Dale's leadership, uh, a number of just children's ministries there. We started with VBS and then we got into a weekly Bible study uh, in those in fellowship time in these three different churches. And they were all African-American children that were coming to them. And we would, once a month, we would have a big worship service in Sunday evening. We would bring those children in, you know, and uh, have a service together in the downtown church.
0: Even, and still, at second, this kind of activity had its detractors. Jim Alec said after one contentious meeting about it, several dozen people who were opposed to this ministry got up and left the church.
3: I was so uptight about that that uh, when that was over and I came home, I went in and just told Gail, I said, I'm going to bed. And I lay down that night and I just, simplest prayer I've ever prayed in my life, I said, God, I can't take it anymore. And I woke up the next day with the most calm and peaceful attitude that God just let me know, said, I'm still on my throne. There are gonna be bumps along the road, but I'm still on my throne. And that was as real to me as anything that's ever happened in my life.
0: Bumps along the road would be coming for the Mallocks and members of Second Baptist, but the road was also full of pleasant surprises for the church in the coming years. One was the purchase of Lake Nixon, a recreational area of several hundred acres on the outskirts of Little Rock. The church envisioned it for, among other things, a day camp summer program for children of all backgrounds. Mallock remembers someone telling him,
3: First time a black person walks in that door and you're gonna lose your whole business. And so, it didn't happen. And we started a day camp program. In which-
0: Cowling's vision to purchase the Albert Pike Hotel, it didn't go away. Malick says one day, in August 1971, Cowling shared his vision publicly, adding that he wanted the church to be able to buy the hotel and turn it into a residence for the elderly. About a week later, Cowling got a phone call. The woman on the other end of the line was named Marcia Tillman. She was not a member of the church, but she had heard Cowling speak the week before. She said she wanted to come visit with Cowling.
3: She came and uh, said, young man, tell me your dream. When he finished, she said, how much is it gonna take to do it? And he said, I've got to have $150,000 in cash, and the church doesn't have any. And she said, but well, when you show me a signed contract, I'll give you the $150,000. <laughs> and so he said, okay. We got the bill of sale and signed it, you know, contingent on <laughs> a special gift, and and uh, when he took that to her, she took him to the bank and went to the lockbox and went back to the table, and she started plopping blue chip stocks down, and they were keeping up with it, and walked out of there with $156,000.
0: Marsha Tillman was a retired school teacher from Little Rock's Central High School.
3: She said, you're wondering where this came from, aren't you? (laughs) And he said, yes ma'am, I sure am. (laughs) And she said, well, just while I was teaching, I would buy a little stock every chance I got. And that's where this came from. And uh, there were plenty left in there when she got through. Anyway, so we bought the hotel.
0: And when they bought the hotel, because of a technicality in the law, Second Baptist Church was, on paper, temporarily, the holder of a liquor license for the hotel lobby. Maybe they're court Baptists after all this podcast, A Second Language. We'll be right back after this word from Christians Against Christian Nationalism.
4: I'm Mary Novak, Executive Director of Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice. We were one of the early supporters of the Christians Against Christian Nationalism campaign. People of all faiths and no faith have the right, and in fact for some religious traditions, have the responsibility to engage in the public square. Separating the institutions of religion and government does not and should not mean silencing constructive religious voices. And people approach voting in public policy from a variety of perspectives, including their religious beliefs and ethics. There can be and often are religious viewpoints on multiple sides of a policy debate. And that is where we get some of the best results for our common good. Christian nationalism tends to ignore and devalue multiple religious viewpoints. And that is antithetical to the goal of the common good inherent in this pluralistic democracy. For more on the campaign, visit ChristiansAgainstChristianNationalism.org.
0: Welcome back to A Second Language from Good Faith Media. Dale Cowling was always proud of what the church accomplished with the Albert Pike Hotel. He was also proud to support Jimmy Carter in his bid for president in 1976.
2: Vote for Jimmy Carter, a leader for a change.
0: Cowling wrote as much in the March 12th edition of the church newsletter. I understand that some of you may differ with my political commitment, he wrote. That is as it should be. I simply want all of you to know that I view this presidential election as a matter of grave importance and that I will do what I can for my Christian friend, Jimmy Carter. About 16 months later, the church newsletter reprinted a note congratulating Reverend Cowling on his 25 years as the church's pastor. The note was on White House stationery and signed by President Jimmy Carter. Of course, Carter's presidency, along with other cultural changes in American life, intensified all kinds of backlash and power grabs. That's how the Southern Baptist Convention wound up with a president who, in 1980, said, "'God Almighty does not hear the prayer of a Jew.'" Brooks Hayes, still in the arena and doing important work on ecumenical and interfaith relationships, released a statement distancing himself as a former SBC president from that remark. Hayes said the point of prayer was to learn God's will. Therefore, he wrote, the way to God should be and is open to everyone, saint and sinner, Jew, Muslim, and Christian. Brooks Hayes died in October 1981. He was 83. His funeral address was delivered at Second Baptist by the church's pastor then, Larry Maddox. Maddox said up front that one of Hayes' favorite scripture verses was Micah 6.8 the one about doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. In fact, Maddox structured the eulogy around those commands, offering how Hayes had exemplified them. When the church celebrated its 100th anniversary in 1984, let's just say the church members were not kidding around they produced a multimedia presentation they called Branches of Fruit. I found its 33-page script, diagrams for the reenactments, and lists of personnel. Production director, visual coordinator, costuming, casting, sound effects. Apparently, the production crew saw the church's beginnings best captured musically by Alfred Newman's legendary score for the 1962 epic How the West Was Won. That's it. When you play the audio cassette for the Centennial program at 2nd, which I found in the archives, that's how it started. That was the prelude. Then a narrator took over. And my apologies in advance for not having this guy's voice.
3: The Civil War had long ended, but unity had not been restored. The country was suffering the growing pains of the Industrial Revolution and the shift to an urban society. The scars of war were still stinging in Little Rock, as well as most of the South."
0: One of the areas that the church focused on in its presentation, ecumenical and interfaith work. They were proud of Brooks Hayes's ecumenical work, Dale Cowling's special citation from the National Conference of Christians and Jews, and then, more recently, the establishment of an ecumenical religious forum at the church. Those interfaith ties continued when Gene Levy arrived in Little Rock to be rabbi of Temple B'nai Israel.
5: Anyway, so we, we came in, uh, in 1987, been, and I retired in 2011. So I was 24 years at the temple here. And during that time is when I got involved with, with um, interfaith um, and, and uh, this, this church, became kind of a an integral part of that just because it was a Baptist church and I'd never really, I had this view of Baptists that, that I'm sure that
0: many of them had of,
5: of Jews.
6: You know, we were talking about interfaith relationships building in the 1980s when no one, when a lot of people weren't.
0: That's Dr. Sarah Tarek, Associate Dean for Student Affairs in the College of Medicine at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences.
6: I, again, always very comfortable with people of other faiths. Um, I'm a Sunni Muslim from a very strong Sunni family, but growing grew up with a Shia, fa- Shia family in Little Rock. Very, um, my other very close friends were Christian, Catholic, and Jewish. So very comfortable.
0: She graduated from Little Rock's Central High School, went to medical school, and served as chief resident at Brown University before moving back to her hometown. She's heavily involved in interfaith work and is good friends with Preston Clegg.
6: So for me, Little Rock is this amazing place of people of all faiths and backgrounds and cultures um, who come together and have tried to create this city and work together and build, build family and build community. And anybody who's, who's shocked at that needs to come and visit us, needs to come and see this place. When Muslims were not in the forefront, Muslims in this city were. There weren't a lot of us, but we were talking and we were connecting. The Catholics, the good Catholics and the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Jews of the city knew who we were. So we were a small enough city to where those factions and cliques, they do exist, but they don't exist in such a way that they're so separate. We're small enough that we have to work together. We have to be connected together in this way. And we choose to. It's a tradition.
5: The Jewish community here and the Islamic community are very small. Beyond our own internal programming, there's plenty of time to you know, to to reach out and do um, interfaith type of things. We don't have to it's not just temple, synagogue, 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 temple, synagogue doing things together and mosque, 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 but you know, there's one mosque, maybe two, and just a couple of synagogues, so the, those of us who are more in the in the liberal to moderate part of the religion, I would say, both for Islam and for Judaism, and then for, are more interested. You know, in the in the aggregate, in uh, we're the ones that we we would say, you know, there is not just one truth. There are truths with an S, as opposed to the to the other side that says no. There's just one way, and it's our way. You know. And and they pretty much have isolated themselves away from the from the community. What I'm, what Through
0: the years, yeah, Levy would occasionally teach a class at Second Baptist. I heard someone refer to him, the rabbi, as one of the most popular Sunday school teachers at the Baptist church. Of course, it's no surprise that Levy is friends with Kevin Hefner. Put these two together in a Baptist church, which I did one afternoon, and they started talking about being a minch.
5: You're A minch a min- yeah. yeah. And the minch is it's hard to really define, but it's somebody who, who just exudes goodness and kindness. Somebody who, who really is at the forefront of, of helping people and and being self sacrificing and just being a good person. That's 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 why I said it's hard you can't describe it in one word.
0: Kevin, as I noted back in episode one, knows everyone. He gets around and always has insight to offer based on his experience. Like this interfaith comment while at dinner with Judge Wendell Griffin.
4: Or like I said, I could those as comfortable. <laughs> hate to keep bringing
3: up
2: the mosque, but I'm telling you, man, that the people at the mosque are like the Baptists I used to go to church with. They are normal, loving people.
0: As the 20th century drew to a close, the church again was asking itself whether it should remain downtown. Ray Higgins. Little Rock
1: is a um, unique place in the sense that it is the only inner-city, urban, metropolitan area in the state of Arkansas. When I'm there in the 90s and the early 2000s, we have a little bit of discussion about, uh, do we stay or do we look at Lake Nixon as an option for a church campus? We never take a vote. It's, we're gonna stay, and the church has continued to stay in downtown Little Rock. It is truly one-of-a-kind Baptist church because of its location and because of the values that it embodies.
0: Second Baptist Church stayed downtown and continued its work on race and interfaith relations but another significant challenge was around the corner, another bump in the road. Or would it be more than that? Preston Clegg.
1: In my mind's eye, I thought I would be here for five or six years, marry and bury and earn trust. And when I had sufficient pastoral capital, we would talk about it. It didn't play out that way.
0: What it was and how it played out in our sixth and final episode of A Second Language, from Good Faith Media. You've been listening to A Second Language. Written, produced, and narrated by me, Cliff Vaughn, of Good Faith Media. The executive producer is Mitch Randall. We hope you'll like, rate, and share the podcast. We are a nonprofit, and that really helps us out. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. Thanks to our interviewees, Kwame abdul Bay, Lanny Allenbaugh, Rebecca Cowling, Preston Clegg, Chris Ellis, Wendell Griffin, Stephanie Harp, Eric Higgins, Ray Higgins, John Kirk, Gene Levy, Jim and Gail Malik, Jenna Sullivan, and Sarah Tarek. Special thanks to my colleague, Starlet Thomas, who hosts the Raceless Gospel podcast from Good Faith Media, and to Callie Chisholm for the artwork. And huge thanks to Kevin and Angie Hefner. Thanks to Lisa Spear and Taylor Lawson at the Washita Baptist University Archives, Taffy Hall at the Southern Baptist Historical Library and Archives, Carolyn Wilson in the Special Collections Research Center at the William and Mary Libraries, and Cassidy Long in Special Collections at the University of Arkansas. Other material comes from the Archives at NASA, the Library of Congress, and the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library. Thanks to Jim Pfeiffer and Sandra Hubbard, as well as Billy and Mark Heflin. Thanks to Patrick Fleming and Debbie Huff, Marquis Hunt, Joe and Charlotte Jeffers, Connie New, David Rice, and everyone at the Bramble Market. Thanks also to the Community Bakery in downtown Little Rock. Our music comes from Pond 5. If you are interested in learning more history about Little Rock and Arkansas, visit the fabulous encyclopediaofarkansas.net, a project of the Central Arkansas Library System. Our podcast show notes will list other helpful resources. Check out our other podcasts from Good Faith Media, including our first narrative podcast, Brother Molly, about the life and work of theologian Molly T. Marshall. A Second Language, released in August 2023 from Good Faith Media. We thank you for listening.